We're continuing our talk about the campaign of Armageddon. We're in part two, the second coming of Messiah. If you remember, we, we, uh, the first, the first uh, uh, lesson was about the first five phases of his coming. This is the last three phases of the coming of Jesus Christ. If you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. And remember, we usually go line upon line, precept upon precept. We will be getting into Revelation chapter 17 in a couple weeks. Next week, I think I'm going to do a teaching on the 75-day interval. What happens after Jesus comes back? The earth is so decimated. There's so many people killed. There's just one big giant mess. Well, there's something called the 75-day interval that starts before you get into the millennial reign of Christ. And we'll cover that next week. This week, uh, the campaign of Armageddon, and Jesus is coming back in the clouds. If you remember, he exited in the clouds in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He'll come back in the clouds. Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of, their, out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner. How did he go up? In the clouds. How will he come back? In the clouds. In the same way you saw him go up. Revelation 1-7, another confirming one. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. In Matthew 24, 30, the last one, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Thank you that you have woken people up this, not woken, you've awakened people up this morning <laughs> to be able to come here to study the word. Thank you for these Bible students. Holy Spirit, please teach us today things that you want us to learn. You are the teacher. Help us to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Revelation that we go over every week, we inculcate, teach by repetition. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming to judge the earth, and Jesus is coming to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that the sequence of events of Jesus' return isn't really described fully in one area of Scripture. So we have to take several areas of Scripture to kind of put it together, and that's why we've taken this segue. Various Bible teachers describe the sequence of events differently. We've been following Arnold Fruchtenbaum and his eight phases of return. And as you can see, we've had this picture up for several weeks and we've had the first five that we have gone through, the assembling of the armies, the destruction of Babylon, the fall of Jerusalem, the armies of Antichrist at Basra, and then there's the national regeneration of Israel, and six, seven, and eight we'll be covering today, the second coming of Messiah, the battle from Basra to Jerusalem, and then Jesus' final ascent on the Mount of Olives, where, he, where the mountain breaks open, and that is where most people view Jesus' second coming. Well, we learn that it isn't right at the Mount of Olives. He eventually gets there. Uh, we've also learned that Armageddon starts with the sixth bowl judgment. And if you remember what happened with that, the Antichrist allies, allies were assembled for war. How did they get there? Well, the Euphrates River was dried up. It was a miracle to facilitate the, the armies from the east. And a lot of these people, a lot of people believe these are the 
Chinese folks and that sort of thing, the 200 million man army, they will join Antichrist at Megiddo. But demonic spirits are also involved. Remember when we talked about that sixth bowl? And they are drawing these armies to Megiddo. And they do this by doing signs and wonders and miracles, simeons. Simeon is the word, miracles. And yes, demons can do miracles. And that is why we are, we are just constantly encouraged in 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are from God. How do we test the spirits? Is what they are doing congruent with the Word of God? It has to be congruent with the Word of God. And we had made an application last time, and we, we mentioned that every single time you see a personal conflict or a national conflict, there are spiritual entities in the background stirring up the mess. And remember uh, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a hierarchy of the demonic realm, and they are working against us. And remember, every time there's a conflict, there's demonic spirits involved. Our protection, as you know, is the armor of God, and we are to walk in the armor of God, covered with the armor of God. You just don't leave your, your shield over in the corner, or you don't take your helmet off and say, oh, I need to protect my mind. No, you keep yourself armored up. And we talked about what we are to do as the armored up army of Christ in this culture today with a worldview. Our worldview is diametrically opposed to the masses' worldview, the secular worldview. And so we are called to do three things, and I hope you remember this. Occupy. Occupy. We occupy where we're at. We do not give ground. We do not give in to the world's ways or the worldview that is constantly promulgated upon us. And then we are to resist. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And then we are to fight the good fight of faith. We are to not give up. There's a good fight, then there must be a bad fight. And we talked about the flesh fights that we get into. And no, we want to be in the spirit and, and, and represent God from a spiritual aspect. And then phase two was Babylon is destroyed by disgruntled earth dwellers. And we're wondering, why in the world is Babylon destroyed? I mean, Antichrist has all of this power. Why are the earth dwellers? Remember, all the earth dwellers are non-believers. This is the bold judgment time. There's nobody else that's going to be saved. This is the very end, literally a month or two, short time, okay, until Messiah comes back. And these bold judgments are poured out. And remember, it's boils. All of the earth dwellers, boils from head to toe, misery just reeking from them. The sea was turned to blood. The fresh water was blood. The sun was scorching. There was darkness. There was pain. And there was misery. And Antichrist and the false prophet can't do anything about these bold judgments. And I think these earth dwellers, being as heathen as they are, are sick of Antichrist bloviating his big mouth, and he can't really protect them from what's going on. And so he exits Babylon with his armies to muster at Megiddo, leaving Babylon undefended. And these earth dwellers from the north, and remember it was from the north country, come down and destroy Babylon. Antichrist gets word of this, and instead of defending Babylon, he goes on to Jerusalem. And that's phase three. Jerusalem is ravaged by the Antichrist armies. Again, his goal, remember, his defined goal is to exterminate 
every Jew possible. Every Jew possible. Exterminate the Jewish people. One-third, folks, of the Jewish population was killed in the first Holocaust. That was Hitler. One-third of the population of the Jewish people on earth. Two-thirds will be killed by Antichrist. The battle for Jerusalem won't be easy. Remember, the, the, the Jewish folks will give a great account of themselves. Antichrist will finally be successful. He'll have, he'll have a minor victory there, so to speak, because Jesus will come back to Jerusalem and have the final victory. Having ravaged Jerusalem, his next stop was Basra. Why Basra? Antichrist moved against the remnant in Basra. Why Basra? Why are the Jews there? Because these are the ones that saw the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Hopefully you remember that. They are there because of that. Matthew 24, 15, and 16. Therefore, Jesus says this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, this should resonate with each one of us. Bible prophecy is important. We study Bible prophecy so that we know what is coming. God holds us responsible as believers to know what is coming. And when you see this, this thing standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And we knew from the Old Testament that that mountain safe place was Basra or Petra in the Greek. So the prophet Daniel has warned those who knew the prophecy would be protected. And these are the ones that ran off. Remember, these are not believers in Messiah yet but they are believers in Yahweh, the true God, the true and living God. And they are heeding the word of God. They are wise in what they are doing. So the remnant's doom appears to be imminent. This massive army, 200 million plus army, is coming down on Basra. There is no hope for the Jewish people. From a human perspective, they are defenseless. In utter desperation, this is when they will cry out to Messiah to deliver them. And then phase five, we saw the national regeneration of Israel. And the, I don't know if you remember the scripture, but it was Romans eleven twenty-five through 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brethren, lest you be wise in your own opinion. For blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all of Israel will be saved. And we focus strongly on the fullness of the Gentiles. That is a set number of Gentiles that will be saved during the church age. Then the church will be extracted and God will refocus his attention on the nation of Israel. That is an important concept. It will take the entire 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation period, to break the power of the holy people. It says that in Daniel 12:7. And the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. All these things will be finished. That word power means this. High-handedness, obstinate. That's the attitude of the Jewish people regarding Messiah. They rejected him. Now, we have a picture of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And it's the entire 70 weeks. And you'll be familiar with this. We've had this before. But if you remember from the going out of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there would be 69 weak years, 483 years, 173,880 days, 
from the going out of the command until Jesus comes into, 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 into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and received his kingship 69-week years. He was rejected, he was cut off, and he was killed, and the time stopped for the Jewish people at the 69th week. There's been a pause in that 70-week prophecy. That's the 2,000-year church age. We believe, some of us believe, that the rapture of the church is pre-tribulation. And I believe that to be true, that the church will be extracted, and then Antichrist will come to power. Remember, he comes to power slowly. He comes on a, on a white horse. He makes a peace and allows the Jewish people to rebuild their temple, and everything is rosy between Antichrist and the Jewish people until the middle of the week when he sets up the abomination of desolation, insist that all the world worship him, and insist that they take the mark. And from this point forward, Antichrist is pouring out his venom on anybody. This is the wrath of Antichrist over here, on anybody who will not believe in him. Also here is where we see the bold judgments. The seal judgments, I think, are in the first part here. The trumpet judgments kind of lapse these, this area, and the bold judgments are at the very end. Now, with that stated, there's a debate on where the rapture occurs. So I just wanted to remind you again that where you believe the rapture is does not determine if you're a Christian or not. There are debates on whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-tribulation. So we have the chart. This is Andy Wood's work. You're, you're familiar with this. The pre-tribulation rapture, of course, we believe that the rapture of the church occurs before the seven-year tribulation period. And then we come back as the bride of Christ with Messiah. Mid-trib, I think, is probably the weakest of the arguments for this reason. If it's the middle of the tribulation, it's exactly in the middle of the tribulation, there'll be 1,260 days before Messiah will return. 1,260 days. If that's 1,260 days, you know when Jesus is coming back. And that is contrary to the Word of God, which says, no man knoweth the day or the hour when Messiah comes back. So this one is a little bit more problematic, but I'm sure they have answers for that. And then you have the, the, the post-tribulation where Jesus comes, actually, he takes the people up and they make a U-turn and come right back. Okay. There's some, there's some uh, validity to this one. And I understand why people would believe this. And the pre-wrath has some, uh, some valid arguments also. But again, you're taken up at this very last part of the tribulation and you come back you enter the millennial reign of Christ. All of them believe in the millennial reign of Christ. This is kind of an important thing. There are folks that are amillennialists that do not believe in a millennium, but we won't talk about that now. So, the nation of Israel is regenerated. And remember, we shared in Hosea chapter 5, 15, and chapter 6, 1 through 2, that this, this regeneration will occur near the very, very end. Two to three days before the end of the tribulation, it will take that whole time frame for the Jewish people to finally realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they'll plead for him to return. They'll have an emotional response that we, that we marked that was significant. Zechariah 12.10 tells us how the nation, when they are regenerated, feel. And God says this, And I will pour out on the house of David, I being God, and the inhabitants of the Jerusalem, this is the, the Jewish people, the spirit of grace and supplication. This is the new covenant. 
where they're given a new heart and the nation in those believing remnant believe, the whole mass believe, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who was pierced? Jesus was pierced. Who is the me? God is saying, I will pour out on the house of David and they will look upon me. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is God incarnate. He always existed. He is not a created being like it says in Islam. He's not just a great prophet as it says in in Buddhism or Hinduism. He is God incarnate. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him and one grieves for his firstborn. They will lament how they treated Messiah. Remember this. In our study of Armageddon thus far, we see God orchestrating all these things. This is not Antichrist just doing his thing as he wants. God is using him as he's used Satan in the past. That just Satan makes a move, God makes a counter move. But it's always allowed by God. And he always has an answer for what Satan is doing. God is in full control. It's always God's way. And remember, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to approach the living God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. He's the exclusive way. He's the exclusive road. Remember, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That door he was talking about was the sheepfold in John 10, 9. There's one way into the sheepfold. Jesus watches over his sheep. There's intimacy there. But there's one way to God, and we have this picture. One road to God, and that is the Jesus road, and this is the road. Get on the one road, okay? Now, the next picture you've seen before, it is not just choose your road. You can choose the Muslim road, the Hindu road, the Buddha road, any road that you want. It's just up to you because you're so important. You just decide, and they all go to the same place, don't they? And you'll be amazed at who believes this, and that's a lie. That is a lie. The road is narrow. The road is one way, but that road is inviting everyone to participate. It's a wide-open invitation, wide-open invitation. Now, many people have the wrong view of Jesus. Many people have created Jesus in their image. They created a, a loving Savior who judges no one and condemns no one. Now, look, at now this is important. Because the world views Jesus differently than what Jesus really is. The love of God is real. And the world camps on this, and we should. The love of God is amazing and astounding. It's who he is. But his holiness is real. The wrath of God is real. The world totally ignores this fact. They, reju- they ignore the real Jesus. They are not taught the real Jesus. They are taught about the Jesus that will give you whatever you want because you're just so wonderful and you deserve whatever you want. No, you don't. You deserve whatever God wants for you. Holiness, righteousness. We don't worship the pretend Jesus or the Jesus that I control. Okay? The make-believe Jesus. Blaise Pascal. I've mentioned this guy before. He was a 17th century mathematician. So many people make things up in order to suit their own ways. Watch what he says. People most invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on what they find attractive. I will just make something up, and that's my truth. Oh, no. 
Jesus said, my word is truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. There is a truth that you can know. Now, phase six is the second coming of Messiah. We've already read Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, that he will come in the clouds. The second coming of Messiah is foundational to Christianity. I think to be a Christian, that is one of the things that you have to believe, that he's coming back. He's coming back. Never forget this. Now, this is an important concept that most people do not know. Most people in Christendom do not know, and many people deny. The kingdoms of this world are under the control of Satan. All the kingdoms of this world. Remember, Satan usurped authority of the kingdoms of this world in the Garden of Eden when he deceived Adam and Eve to take of the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They just chomped down on that, and then death and sin came in, and they lost something very valuable. They lost what is called theocratic rule. They were to, Theo is God, so they were to rule under God as representatives of God on this planet. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. Let that resonate for just a second, because our world is not understanding that today. Male and female, he created them. Then he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And then they have this word, have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. That dominion is the word radah. And you know what it means? It means to rule. It means to reign. It means to have ownership. It is, that is what we were to do prior to the fall. We lost that, and now Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. Okay, they're under his control. So that's a concept we must know. So you must know, I, I hope you got this right, Maritza, because I kind of messed you up with this. A facts you must know. Every person born in the kingdom of darkness belongs to Satan. The only way out of the kingdom of darkness is to be rescued by Jesus Christ. Please, I hope you know that. Jesus died on the cross. He paid my, put your name there, my sin debt. He took all of the wrath of God that I deserved. Jesus died in my place. Now, you remember this. I think, I hope you remember this. God's righteousness, holiness demands a payment for sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. The only way that the soul that sins will not die is that someone is substituted for them. In the Old Testament, they would sacrifice a lamb. In the New Testament, is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Remember this, because we sin, we earn something from the sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is? Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life. Oh, you guys are great. You could teach this. Yes, you could. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. No other way. Jesus Christ our Lord. If I believe and receive the free gift of salvation, I can be rescued from the kingdom of darkness. Christ will forcefully, this is important, extract anyone who believes from Satan's clutches. Colossians 1.13 was confirmatory in this. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you remember this, 
He has delivered us. That word was, and hopefully most of you have written this down, in your Bibles, because you can't do it on your phone, can you? In your Bibles, rumai, R-U-M, pretend it's M-O-I. You can go look it up. I don't have it here before me. This, I'm, this is extemporaneous. So, uh, so it's, the word is rumai, and it means, it, it means forcefully extracted. God snatches you from Satan's clutches. Now, he's trying to hold on. God just goes, beek, and conveys you soon to a son of his love. That's what happens here. Now, Jesus, what he's doing, because all of these kingdoms are under control of Satan, what is he doing? He's coming back at his second coming to take over the kingdoms of this world. Remember what it says in Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And what will he do? And he shall reign, how long? Forever and ever and ever. Oh, hey, good job. That's right. Just think, no more dictators. And remember, Daniel's statue of the kingdoms of this world. Now, we're going to have a couple of statues here. You are familiar with this. Why am I bringing this up now? Because these are all the kingdoms of this world. And I decided to get a nasty-looking guy here instead of a nice, pretty-looking guy because these are nasty, actually. These are nasty. See, this is how man looks at himself, strong and powerful. This was Babylon, was the, was the most powerful, most wealthy of all the kingdoms. And then Persia took over, and then Greece took over, and then Rome had a, and there is an east and west division of Rome even today. This is the time frame that we are in today, where there are nations that are on the east side, east block, and there are west block of nations. The future is the ten-nation confederation the ten toes of part iron and part clay. This is how man looks at himself as wonderful and terrific. And God looks at these as beasts. Beasts. He looks at them very differently. Look how nasty Rome is. They got this depicted as a dinosaur, but it is just nasty. It just gets worse and worse and worse. That is how God views. Now, I want to show you something. As we put up the next one, if you would, Maritza, please put up the next one. In Daniel chapter 2, we see that the a rock is, ca is carved out of the mountain. This rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming and he's crushing the kingdoms of this world. Now, this is something you need to know. He crushes the feet and the whole thing implodes on itself. Why is that? Because each kingdom takes on characteristics of the preceding kingdom. Persia was a little bit like, like Babylon. Greece was a little bit like Babylon and Persia and so on. And so all of them, when the, when, the, when the feet are crushed, the whole thing implodes like an accordion. Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in verses, in channel, Daniel 2, 45, it says, Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure, and the world denies this. Now, this is the crushing of the feet, and this whole thing implodes. The world denies this because the world cannot see that Babylon, uh, that Daniel prophesied about Babylon before Persia was even thought about as a ruling kingdom. Then they became rulers, and this is hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, Daniel's prophecy occurs exactly and precisely as he, as he said it would occur. 
The Bible is the only holy book, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, in the world that has fulfilled prophecy. It proves the truth of the Bible. You can rely on the Bible to be true, to be true. Now, how will Jesus return? He comes back in the clouds. He comes back in the clouds. Remember, we read it in Acts 1, 9, 11, Revelation 1, 7, and Matthew 24, 30. But in case you forgot, I will re I'll read Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So he's he left in the clouds. He's coming back in the clouds. Now think about this. The rapture of the church is quick. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, boom, one-sixth billionth of a second, we are transitioned from here to our God in heaven. It is fast. The second coming is how? Slow. They are not the same events. The second coming is slow. Jesus went up, and his disciples went, whoa, there he goes, up into the clouds, and he disappeared. That had to be shock and awe. Okay, that was a one-time thing. They never saw that. They saw a lot of different miracles that Jesus did, but they never saw the floating miracle. Now they see that. That's how he's coming back. Slow. That means everybody will see him. It's not going to be, boom, he's here. It's going to be, Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. And every eye will see him. I don't know how that works in a circular world, but I know that every eye will see him. Some people say this, it could refer to those in the area of Jerusalem, and then it goes on to say that all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, not necessarily see him. I kind of think that something special is going to go on here. And that God is just going to kind of split open everything, and Jesus is going to come back, and people will see him. There will be cosmic chaos when he comes back. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. That is after the tribulation. That is when Jesus is coming back. Now the question is, who will return with Jesus? And I can tell you, there's two groups. The church and angels will return. First of all, Revelation 19, 14, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, I don't know if this is symbolic, but I kind of like to think it's literal, and I'm going to get to ride a horse, <laughs> a white horse when we come back. The armies of heaven, the church, I think, I think this is talking about the church and angels. Revelation chapter 4 Verse 4 gives us an indication about who the church is. And it's talking about the 24 elders. And this is not without controversy because no one really knows who the 24 elders is. But I think we can extrapolate from what I'm going to share with you that there's a strong argument for it being the church. Watch what it says. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. And remember, we've talked about this in the past, but it's been months ago, clothed, watch what they're clothed in, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, those crowns were Stephanos crowns, victor's crowns, overcomer's crowns. 
And if you remember, chapter 2 and 3 talk about the church. And each one of these churches has the admonition from Jesus Messiah to be overcomers, victors. Remember where was Nikeo? Nikeo, victors, overcomers. This sounds like the church. More confirmation. Chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, that is Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb. This is a picture of everyone in heaven. The angelic realm, the cherubim, the seraphim, everyone falling before the throne of God, bowing. Each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now notice who the they are that are singing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, talking about Jesus, have redeemed us to God by your blood, that's Jesus, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign with him forever. Now, who did Jesus die for? He died for every believer, but in context, the 24 elders are the church, the church, and we are coming to reign with him. The only ones that are going to reign in the millennial reign is going to be the church, the bride of Christ. will be coming back. More on that in just a second. Now, you will be raptured. I believe that with all of my heart. The question is exactly when that occurs. Now, I believe with most of my heart it's the pre-tribulation, okay? So, the first thing that I think happens by Scripture, when you are raptured, after you go to heaven, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of your life. That's the Bema Seat judgment. That's the, that's the victor's judgment, the, the game's judgment. And that's where we will receive rewards or loss of rewards. Jason read that today. Rewards or loss of rewards based upon our, our faithfulness to Jesus on this side. So what we do here after salvation determines our, 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 I believe it's, it's our ruling in the millennial kingdom. We're, we're saved. There's people that are going to be saved us through the fire. They're going to just get in without having any rewards. So those will be the carnal Christians. But that is not where we want to live. We want to serve our God while we have breath because he is a generous, wondrous rewarder and he is worthy to be served. That's the first thing. The next thing I believe happens is the marriage of the Lamb. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 8. We'll go through that extensively when we get to that section of Scripture. When Jesus returns to the earth the second time, he is the bridegroom. Now, where is the bride in relationship to the bridegroom? Close, isn't she? When Jesus comes back, who is coming back with him? The bride. The bride is coming back. And what does the bride do? The bride is going to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. Isn't that just an amazing thing? I don't know how that's all going to work, but guess what? You're going to have to be changed in order to rule like that. And so will I. And then the angels are going to come. Matthew 25, 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So you have this angel armies that's coming. And Jesus, by the way, fights this fight alone. He doesn't need the angels. He doesn't need us. I can just see us, though. We're just cheering. Go, Jesus. Yes, go. And then the battle starts at Basra, phase 7. 
Now, this is a little bit more difficult, but I want to share with you a verse. And if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 34, verses 2 through 6. Isaiah 34, 2 through 6. For the indignation of the Lord is against all the nations. I believe this is talking about the second coming of Messiah. In his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. And it goes on and on. Pick it up in verse 6. The, the sword that is filled with blood, it is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with fat of kidneys of lambs. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and Petra, in a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Messiah is coming back to Basra to save his people, and there will be a slaughter there that starts there and goes all the way up to Jerusalem. More in just a second. More in just a second. God's wrath is brutal, it is bloody, and it is final. The battle will be swift. Bloody and final, Revelation 14, 20. And the winepress was trampled, trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's 180 miles. That is talking about this event. God's wrath is real, folks. The false Christ, the Antichrist, will be impotent, powerless in the face of the true Christ. All the forces of Antichrist will be destroyed from Basra to Jerusalem. And listen to this. Now, this should be a hip, hip, hooray moment. Evil will finally be dealt with on planet Earth. And let me tell you, love wins. Love will win. Real love will deal with evil. It will conquer evil. Again, many are so uncomfortable seeing Jesus in this role, a conquering king. But hear this, it's God's amazing love, compassion, long-suffering, grace and mercy are real. This is a repeat for emphasis. But God's holiness, justice, and wrath are also real. Now, why does God rescue us? Why does he provide his son as a rescue? Because he loves us. He loves people. John 3.16, folks, is more than a cliche. More than a cliche. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a group of people today that say the atonement is, is God. If you believe in a, in a substitutionary atonement where Jesus takes the wrath of God, then you're believing that God, the Father, is a cosmic child abuser, that he took his son and just threw him on the cross and is abusing him. That is a lie, and that is happening in progressive Christianity today. Don't believe it. Here are the words of Jesus. John 10, 15. Jesus says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. He does this voluntarily. See, they, they have a whole skewed view of what the Trinity is. The Trinity is, I wish I would have done this, but it's overlapping circles. They, they overlap with one another. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are different entities, all of them being God, but they have a, 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 such a unique relationship that they're intimately involved with one another, not just totally separate. 
They are separate, but it's not this, this total like we would experience separateness. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. That just blows that argument to smithereens. Blows it to smithereens. God's heart is for people to turn and live. God's way again and again and again is the only way. There's no freelancing with God. You don't just make up your own rules. He has provided the way to be saved, and there's one way to God, but it's open to everybody. Now hear this. God's love, grace, and mercy, and wrath, or wrath, it's up to you. It's up to each person to determine where I'm going to fall in this, in this spectrum. You can have Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can have that. And that's his desire for each one of us, that we be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or, unfortunately, you can experience the wrath of the returning King of kings and Lord of lords. The truth is this. There is simply no middle ground. Either you are for Christ or you are against Christ. No one can stay neutral in this battle. No one. And in phase eight is the victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4 says this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will be moved toward the north, and half of it will be moved towards the south. Cataclysmic events. Now, we have Arnold Fruchtenbaum again for the last time, the last time in our lives that we will see, the, well, maybe not, but anyway, in, in these teachings. The last one, phase seven, from Basra to Jerusalem, 180, furlong, 180 miles here, blood up to the bridle of the horses. He is victorious. This is his victory ascent up the Mount of Olives, where he is claiming all the kingdoms of this world are his. And again, 1115 comes to full fruition, again, that, that, that all the kingdoms of the world are his, are his. He makes the ascent up the Mount of Olives. Jesus' ascent up the Mount of Olives is associated with cataclysmic events. Revelation 16, verse 17 and 18 say this. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. This is the seventh bowl. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven. That's God speaking from the throne saying, it is done. It is finished. And I don't know if you remember this, but I emphasize that word, it is finished. Jesus cried this from the cross when he said, it is finished. To Tetelestai, the price has been paid for humanity. Now he is saying, it is finished. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign. It is finished. It is finished. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as mighty and great earthquake as not has occurred since men were on the earth. The tribulation may be over, but there is much yet to be done prior to the millennial kingdom. These will occur in the 75-day interval, which we will study next week. So it will be the following week, when we get back into Revelation chapter 17 and talk about Babylon, okay? So in closing, wow, this went way quicker than I thought, okay. The campaign of Armageddon part two. Now, we have spoken about the second coming of Messiah. 
It occurs in eight phases, at least according to Arnold Fruchtenbaum. There are people that have six phases and that sort of thing. But there are phases to this. We have spoken about the wrath of Messiah being poured out on evil, that God will deal with evil. We have spoken about how God's judgment is final. Folks, there's no takes back. There's no takes back. There's no second chance after you die. There is none of that. This is it. This is your time. Once death occurs, your fate is sealed. Your eternal destiny is sealed. Your destiny is determined by the date that you came in, then a dash, and then your exit. That dash is your lifeline, your lifetime. This is our life right here. And I hope that you're running the race to win the race. You're not dawdling, dawdling to the cliff. See if I can, you know, no, you're running the race. This is our time. Be exuberant in your life. Be exuberant in your service of our Lord. Be exuberant, Christian. This isn't time for us to have our lips on the ground. Oh, woe is me. Everybody's hating the Christians now. Folks, we haven't seen anything yet. Just ask the church in China. Just ask the church in Iran. Just ask the church in, in, in Indonesia and all over this world that is suffering for Messiah. Dying in numbers that are greater than any time in the history of the world. We just don't hear about it. We're insulated from it. That's not news today. That's not news. You haven't even heard on the news a peep, a peep about Pastor Jim Coates in Alberta, Canada being put in jail because he refuses to close his church. You haven't heard a peep on the news about that. It's all through Christian news, but it is not on the regular news. You haven't heard anything about Ken Graves being persecuted in Maine, not allowed to have his, his ministry to drug and alcohol addicted people, which he's over 70% effective. And the state has told him that he is allowed to do his program as long as he doesn't include the Bible studies. What does that have to do with, with the coronavirus? You can do this, but you can't do this. What does that have to do with COVID? Zero. That's called persecution. Pray for these men. Pray for these men. Folks, a question that we all have to ponder, why does all of this Armageddon stuff matter to me? I don't plan on being here for the campaign of Armageddon. I don't plan on being here. Hope we're right. Yeah, I think we are. I think there's a lot of evidence. This, now we have to admit this. This is scary stuff, isn't it? This is somewhat far-fetched, disturbing to my spirit. And how many people say this? I just don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about what's happening in our world. I don't want to think about the changes. You know, I could have the three monkeys up there that I've had so many times. I can't see, can't hear, can't. I'm just, I'm just ignoring the whole thing. That doesn't change reality. It does not change reality. Denial is a huge human defense mechanism. I'm not here and it isn't happening. will not work. Now, why do we study this Bible and prophecy so fervently? Do you know that there's a small percentage of the church that actually teaches prophecy? I think it's less than 5%. I heard a number that was most recently quoted. It's a very low number. Very low number. It's very, uh, very unpopular because it is scary. Prophecy, number one, is given to, to, to tell us what is coming and to be prepared for what God says is coming and to warn people. 
and to warn people, folks, things are not as they appear. You are not hearing the truth in the news. We have a media that is giving us canned information. We don't know the truth. So you have to be very discerning. Prophecy is warning, get your life in order. Life is not always going to be the same. And God expects believers to know. And do you know, and I bet you do, that 27% of the Bible is prophetic. 27%. You think that God does not think that's important? Jesus held the people in Jerusalem responsible for knowing who he was. And he told them that, that because you have missed your, your visitation, now these things are hidden from you in Luke 19. We, we have to know. We have a responsibility. Prophecy reminds us that eternity is real. Live godly now. It is important to live our lives in a, in, in a manner that are pleasing to him. We are in a temporal state here. What do I mean by temporary? Temporal. This is temporary. This is temporary. This is not it. People invest everything thinking this is it. This is just a pfft, pfft, a vapor, doesn't what James say? Here for a moment and gone, just pfft, gone. This is a, invest in eternal things. And prophecy reveals the sovereignty of God. God is in control. And prophecy proves that God's word is true. Do you know that the Old Testament prophets said that Jesus would be pierced and he was pierced? Do you know that it said that he would be hung with thieves and he was hung on a cross with thieves? He would die with the unrighteous? Do you know that, they, that, that the scripture says that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb? Now, they could have taken Jesus down with the other two, two guys that died with him, thrown him into a common grave, let the bugs eat him and all that stuff. No. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they took the body down. They put it in Joseph's tomb. It was a rich man's tomb. Can't orchestrate this. There's nobody orchestrating this. They had to get permission to do this from the, from the, from the leadership. Bible prophecy is true. They gambled for his clothes. There's, there's a whole bunch of things that happened with the death of Jesus, like 30-something of them. Prophecy proves the word of God is true. And prophecy helps me to know that I know that this is all real. That Jesus is who he said he was, and he's coming back the way he said he's going to come back, and this world is changing. The king is coming. Your world today, folks, is different than the world in the past. And it's changing at lightning speed. At lightning speed. Knowledge is increasing. Travel is increasing. Everything is increasing. You don't have time to, to just have quiet time for yourself. There's, no, there's almost no such thing as meditation anymore. Meditating on the Word of God. Not mm, emptying yourself. No, med, no, we don't have time for that. We are the most disadvantaged group of people that I think has ever lived. We're overwhelmed with information on a continuum. We never can take a, have a downtime. Folks, this is not your grandfather's world. This is not your father's world. And like I've said before, if you're over 10 years old, this is not the world you were born in. That's how fast it's changing. God's word tells us this will happen in the end and that we are not to panic. There should be no Christian biting their fingernails down to the quick. That is not how we live through this. 
We are to watch and be ready. You do not know the hour when the Son of God will come the second time or for you. He's coming. Guess what? Everybody gets 100% on the death test. We're all passing from here. And I, I want to suggest to you something. Time is a strange thing. It seems so slow, doesn't it? I mean, you're at work and you're wondering, when in the world is it going to be lunch? I just want to make it to lunch. And it just click, 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 and it's just going so slow. But then it can be so fast. It passes so quickly. In hindsight, you look at your life and you're going, where did it go? I mean, just ask me, I mean, where did it go? The Bible warns us that life is a vapor, here for a moment and gone, James 4.14. Satan tells us something quite the contrary. He says, take it easy. You have plenty of time. Ponder the great world religions. Why don't you study those a little bit? Get into that. Immerse yourself into that stuff. How about the great thinkers of our time? Satan's strategy is very much wrapped up in time is on my side. And you know what? The Rolling Stones picked up on that, didn't they? You know, time is on my side. No, it's not. That is a lie, isn't it? That is a lie. Allow me to close with an excerpt from the C.S. Lewis and his screw tape letters. He says this, There's a legend about Satan and his imps planning their strategy for attacking the world that's hearing the message of salvation. One of the demons says this, I've got a plan, Master. When I get on the earth and take charge of people's thinking, I'll tell them there's no heaven. Satan responds this way, They'll never believe that. This book is the truth. It has messages of hope. They know there's a glory yet to be had. On the other side of the room, another, another demon pops up. I've got a plan. I've got a plan, Master. I'll tell them there's no hell. Now, has that not permeated our world today? No one, no good, he says. Jesus, while he was on earth, talked more about hell than he did heaven. You've got to know the book. Know the book. They know in their hearts that they're, that they're wrong and will have to, that wrong will have to be taken care of in some way. They deserve nothing more than hell. And one brilliant little imp in the back stood up and said, Then I know the answer. I'll just tell them there's no hurry. And he's the one Satan chose. Just take your time. Let me ask you this. What does pot do? What does pot do? It makes you take your time. It makes you kind of indolent. It makes you a little numbed, doesn't it? It makes you not alert. That is a dangerous drug, folks. And our country is approving of it. Don't think this isn't a strategy to numb a population, to make them more compliant in dealing with the things that are going to come. Because what's the big deal if the worldview changes? Because I'm a little bit stoned. I don't care. That's a strategy. That is a strategy. Folks, you have a dash, a time in and a time out dash. My dash, March 4th, 1949, dash. And I'm living out my dash. Very soon, there will be an end to my dash. It'll be my entrance point, dash, exit point. 
Okay? This is known as your lifeline. And I would suggest this. Use your time wisely. You don't know how long your dash is. You don't know. Use it wisely. You simply don't know when Christ will come for you. Matthew 25, 13 says this, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. One thing we know, he's coming. He's coming. And we are, we are told to watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. Don't be found sleeping. Don't be found lazy. Occupy. Resist. Fight the good fight while you're here. Give it your all. God gave his all. He is, a, he is our model. We are to give our all for the God that gave us his all. Folks, Jesus is coming, and I would ask you to do this. Live with a heart of Maranatha. The Lord is coming soon. Maranatha. He's coming to rescue us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the time to study the errant, infallible Word of God that we build our lives on. Lord, we worship the God of the Bible. We don't worship the Bible itself, but we worship the one that it speaks of, our Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God. We thank you, Father, for, for, the, for the gift of life and breath and all things. We thank you that you sent your Son into this world to die for the sins of the world. And that all a person need do is believe and receive the gift. And then we live all out for you. All out for you. Everything given to you. You give us the strength. You give us the power. You've given us your Holy Spirit as a rod of iron up our spine. You've given us the ability to be overcomers and to persevere through this whole thing called our dash. May we live all out with the power that you have given to us, your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.